You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Brighton Rock Podcast. It's episode 134. We're really racking these ones up. Um, in this particular one, no co-host Peter. It's just me, Russell Guyver, and my special guest, who is, as his description on Twitter says, a freelance TV reporter and presenter. Been around a bit, still love it. It's Mr. Dave <laughs> Beckett, Albion Hi. fan as well. Dave, how are you doing? Yes, very good, thanks. Very good. Excellent. Absolute pleasure to have you with us. Oh, good, no, good. good to be here. I said it off air, I'll say it on air as well. You've got a bit of a Paul Barber background going on there with the, uh, the shutters in the window. They've become a traditional classic in, <laughs> in, in Zoom calls with him. They're very popular <laughs> these days, shutters. Yeah, very you've, you've just recently moved, so I'm, I'm assuming that's a deliberate thing, was it? Uh, what, the shutters? Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I just said, can you give us something that looks a bit like Paul Barber's place? <laughs> top, top of the list, really. If, if I'd have been a bit more switched on, I'd have said, can we have somewhere that looks like one of Tony Bloom's places, I would imagine, because I should think they're pretty grand. <laughs> yes, that might have been better. Maybe I chose the wrong, the wrong Albion person there, but there we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, no, no, I mean, he's, he's doing well. So, um, but anyway, welcome to your new house, I guess you, you could say. Um, yeah. Anyway, the, re- the reason I've got you on, uh, several reasons, wanted to get you on for a while actually and have been planning to um you're as well as being a, a recognized particularly voice but also face to a number of football fans up and down the land um you are also an Albion fan which I discovered a fair few years ago now I think it was um it's delighted to hear that anybody in the media when you hear their Albion fans it always adds an extra little spark yeah. particularly as we were in the lower leagues at the time and didn't get as much coverage in general um yeah. so Really, firstly, I wanted to start with that. How did you become an Albion fan and what, what sort of era are we talking about? And tell us how you got into it. Yeah, well, I th- it, it runs in the family, really, but it was actually it probably skipped a generation because my dad, funnily enough, was more of a sailor, really, rather than a football fan, although he did go to a couple of games, uh, notably the FA Cup final replay with me back in 83. It's the one I really remember going to with him. Uh, but my brother's a massive Albion fan, season ticket holder, uh, brother-in-law, nephews, you know, everyone in the family, really. On my, I suppose for us, it started more with my granddad, who must have been watching the Albion back in the 
sort of, well, 40s, 50s and through, and he took my brother. Uh, and then I actually went with, because my brother was a bit of a sailor as well, so uh, we didn't, and he's a bit older than me, so I didn't used to go to the football with him. He used to go with my granddad when I was too young. And it was actually sort of friends of the family. In fact, it was it was, it was actually um, just a mate from school, and his dad took me to a game in 1980, which just happened to be Albion against Nottingham Forest, who, of course, were European champions at the time. I mean, it was a bit like, you know, landing a ticket for the... Yeah, you know, for a Liverpool game these days, completely out of the blue. And they were like, oh, do you fancy going to the football? Um, and I went to that and Albion won 1-0. And as I remember it, I'm always a bit hazy on details, but as I remember it, I think Albion won 1-0 in about maybe the 87th minute. Maybe it wasn't that late, but Gary Williams scored the goal, which was a, a cracking shot, you know, sort of 25, 30 yards. It was on match of the day that evening, which of course in those days, not all the games were. Mm. I remember him waving to his waving to the cameras saying, hello, mum, after he'd scored. <laughs> that was as, as big as the celebrations got in those days. And, of course, the goalkeeper was Peter Shilton, who, you know, to see Brighton beat Nottingham Forest back then, it was, for younger fans now, I was going to say it was like, you know, seeing Brighton beat Liverpool now, as if that can never happen. <laughs> but, you know, obviously that's happened just the other week. But, yeah, I mean, it really was an amazing thing. So that was my first game, and I was instantly hooked. Sorry, go on. I was going to say, was that the game where we broke their really long unbeaten run as well? Well, or, I think we beat them. I'm pretty sure that season we beat them uh, at the city ground and at the Goldstone. And I think mm. maybe we'd already beaten them at the city. In fact, no, that must have been earlier in the season because I think the game at the city ground famously was Tony Woodcock's last match for Forrest. Uh, I have a vague memory of photos of a scoreboard saying sort of goodbye Tony Woodcock when he went off to Cologne. Um, so I'm not sure which way around the matches were, as I say, I'm a bit hazy on details of some of these things. Um, but I know we won, and I know it, for me it was just the most amazing experience. We stood it down in the sort of chicken run in the East Stand. Um, and then I was sort of allowed to go from around about 12 or 13 years old. I used to trek over there. I used to live in Woodingdean. I used to trek over there from Woodingdean on the bus sort of try to get to the games. And then, not surprisingly, my sort of mum managed to fix me up then with a family friend that I used to go with, a guy called Ernie, um, who was a lovely fella. Um, and, yeah, we used to go to those games. We went to the FA Cup semi-final together, the FA Cup final together. Um, and I used to sort of badger my brother as well to take me in the North Stand sometimes with the big boys, you know, so because he was, he was a lot older. So he was pretty patient about that, really, considering I was, you know, 12 or 13 or something. Yeah. Yeah, so it sounds like you're the same sort of generation as me. My first game was seventy nine, eighty. So yeah, yeah, yeah. certainly relate to these this era and those those players and the. I, I think it was that same time. season, probably. Yeah, I think yeah. it was the yeah. seventy nine, eighty season. Yeah, yeah. We're um, basically I, glory hunters, aren't we, Dave? Well, basically, yeah. And then I think I had my first season ticket. I think in eighty two, eighty three, because I remember being at school and it wasn't very fashionable to support Brighton, even though we were in the first division. And most of my friends were Manchester United fans and Liverpool fans. And, you know, they were the real glory hunters, I suppose. Um, and the thing I really remember, of course, is we got to the FA Cup final and everyone was then scrambling for a, a ticket for that. Having, having been to, you know, most of the, the home games and the semi-final and everything, and everyone was scrambling for a ticket for the final. And, of course, I could wave my, I think it was 50 quid in those days, my little terrace season ticket at them and say, well, I've got a ticket because I'm a season ticket holder. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I, you know, I always followed them from back then, but, and, and never waned. I, I sort of carried on right through. I've lived in Birmingham, 
Plymouth, Southampton, and in all of those places, I used to go and watch Aston Villa, and I used to watch Plymouth Argyle and Southampton. Um, but you know, none ever came close to sort of tearing me away from the Albion. Yeah, you're you're in good company in the job. We'll get into how you got into your job in a, a moment, but you're in good company in that, aren't you? Um, famously, the late great Peter Brackley in the commentator yes. side of things. You've got uh, a couple of other people, well, plenty of people in the media world. Um, well, Manic, that, Paul Hayward, and various others. Well, and of course the top man, Desmond Lynham, who, you know, I was lucky enough to work with. Um, I mean, he was my hero growing up, without a doubt. Um, And I was lucky enough to work with him at ITV, uh, Euro 2000, I suppose. And it was always great with with Des Lynham because obviously there was an aura about him. I mean, you know, I think he was a very very nice guy, but people were obviously almost a little bit sort of, uh, deferential to him, I suppose, at ITV, really only the bosses a lot of the time would go near him, you know, and people were a little bit kind of cautious about, oh, you know, we'd better not disturb Des too much. And it was always totally different for me. I was really lucky because I would go in and they'd be sitting there, you know, having their chat about the Champions League or something. And, you know, Des would sort of want to talk about Bobby Zamora and, you know, what yeah. about that game the other night against Scunthorpe, you know. So I'm, I'm, I wouldn't claim to have, you know, been one of his kind of best friends, but we'd always have a, we'd always have a natter when we met. And I met him a few times um, after he left ITV as well um, with Dean. And, you know, just, a, well, I mean, for me, what a privilege, you know, because that guy was, bar none, in my opinion, I mean, he was just the best sports broadcaster really that I can remember. And, and, I think in his heyday, just the best broadcaster, really, full stop. I mean, he was just magnificent, wasn't he? On things like World Cups, you know, the, the you know, shouldn't you be at work? I mean, that line, what a, <laughs> what a line that was. Um, That's great. And something about yeah. the, there's a rumour there's a football match on or something. I can't remember the exact quote. It was some opening yeah. line like that, wasn't there? He really yeah, had I, the gravitas. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember actually embarrassing myself at the Goldstone when I first started because I was only about sort of 17 or so um, when I sort of was lucky enough to do my first kind of Albion games. And I remember walking down the steps from the press box at the Goldstone and Des Lynham was coming up the other way. And of course you have that thing when you see someone like Des Lynham, you just sort of think that you know them because I mean, I'd grown up with Des Lynham. Um, and so I was like, oh, hello Des. And I was, I was probably quite sort of, I think I'd just come off air as well. So you're a little bit pumped up and you're feeling very confident and everything if you've done something like that. So I said, oh, hello, Des. As if, and and, and he, he didn't sort of cut me dead, which he might well have done. He was like, oh, how's it go today? He obviously clocked what I was on my way down from the press box. And he was great. You know, and again, I've always loved that. Just that was the first time I ever met him. Um, just in passing, he had no idea who I was. Um, but he was so polite, so friendly. Um, so, yeah, legend. And, and the other guy you mentioned as well, Peter Brackley, who, again, I worked with at ITV uh, during sort of a couple of World Cups and did quite a, did, did a few European games with him as well when he was commentating um, and then kind of got to know him again sort of in later years before he sadly passed away, sort of in the build-up to that show he did at the Theatre Royal and everything. And, I mean, what a guy, Brackers. I mean, just an absolute screen, you know, brilliant broadcaster and an absolute screen. And, and in a kind of a way that not you know the rest of us aren't I mean I'd like to think I'm sort of decent at my job and you know there's lots of people that can do a decent job reporting on a football match but Brackers was a bit of a genius really I mean he just had when he did that show at the Theatre Royal I talked to him a lot in the build-up to that and had quite a few because for for reasons I went we had a bit of a, a 
bit of a sort of a, um, a sort of tragedy in the family, really, I suppose, just before it. So I couldn't actually work on it in the end. But um, uh, but yeah, it was it, uh, he was unbelievable. I mean, he was just fizzing with so many ideas. You know, it was, you would have thought he was a sort of 17 year old just breaking into broadcasting. He was so full of ideas and just so much fun. But yeah, so so good guy. Good guy. Yeah, of course, famous for the football Italia commentaries. Um, a whole generation of people might remember that actually um, on Channel Four in the nineties, wasn't it? I think early that's 90s. right. And, and um, for being, of course, Jimmy Greaves as well on a very famous episode of On the Ball, yeah, where Jimmy yeah. Greaves wasn't well, so he did his spitting image puppet instead. I mean, <laughs> an excellent impressionist. Always had a joke. I, I, I'll tell you one story. Um, I mean, it's a bit off the sort of football thing. One of my fondest memories of working with. Um, with Pete was we during the World Cup in 2002 most of us didn't go um, it was mainly done from London because of the time difference so they're, they're, most people um, sort of stayed back here but we were all staying in a, in a hotel off of uh, just near Oxford Street and they had one of those is it called a pianola that plays itself like you know the pianos yes. that play themselves yeah, so they had one of those in the lobby and we we're all sitting there in the evening and Peter goes over this and like the place is chock full of all these sort of Japanese tourists and everything. And he's sitting at this piano as if he's playing it because it's quite a nice hotel, you know, with the sort of <laughs> you know, where you quite often have the piano player in the corner sort of tickling the ivories. <laughs> he was getting more and more flamboyant. He was flinging his arms around and it was, you know, it became more and more ludicrous. And these people were like lapping up, they were applauding him. And of course he wasn't playing the thing at all. It was playing itself, you know. It was just hilarious. Did you get any tips then, uh, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't play again. But, um, yeah, no, just a great, a great guy. So, but um, yeah, a few Albion fans around. And, and I've mentioned this before, Simon Brotherton is someone I grew up with as well, who, um, the BBC commentator, uh, but he's not, a Villa, he's a Villa fan. So boo to him really, but he did yeah. grow up in Brighton. So he's, he's an old mate of mine. Yeah, I think yeah. he still lives in Brighton, doesn't he? Is that right? Uh, I think he lives, up, he lives up sort of near uh, around Horsham Way, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, but he does, um, they do sort of send him to quite a few Brighton games, I think, because obviously it's convenient. And he's got a bit of a soft spot for us. And Jonathan Pierce as well, who uh, he lives locally, um, he's got a bit of a soft yeah. spot for us too. Yes, you might be able to answer a question actually on this, Dave. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but as I understand it, Jonathan Pierce is a Bristol City fan from that area, moved to Brighton. As I understand it, he's married to a Palace fan and he's got a couple of kids and I think one of them supports Brighton and Palace. Is that true? Are you able uh, that, to that, Yeah, that rings true, actually. Yeah, he's definitely a Bristol City fan, yeah. um, as I say. And I, but he does he does have a bit of a soft spot for the Albion. But yeah, I think he did say to me, um, I see him occasionally on the, when I do some of the Champions League stuff for BT, see him up there. And he did say, yeah, that um, it was coming up to the Brighton Palace game, I think. And he was saying it was, you know, Mixed loyalties because uh, yeah. one supports Brighton and Palace. I, I don't know how you manage to support Brighton and Palace. I think that's an impossibility. But I know. I'm go. not even sure if that's true or not. But if it is, it's absolutely it's nuts, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, no, I think it, I think it is true. I can confirm it is yeah. true. So, oh um, wow, yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, right. Jonathan is very well connected with all those London clubs as well from his time on hmm. Capital Radio, and you know, he goes back a long, long way before TV. Um, I think he was very good friends with Bobby Moore. Um, he used to work, he used to be his um, sort of uh, summariser, co-commentator, you know. So, yeah, he's very well connected around the London clubs. Yeah. Um, and another top guy. He was at the FA Cup semi-finals. I mean, he's definitely got a soft spot for us because I know 
at the FA Cup semi-final a couple of years back, I, I sort of bumped into him there and um, he was sort of sitting in the Brighton then, you know, watching Brighton. So um, he's, he's not a Brighton fan, but uh, he knows what he knows what's going on at the club. You know, that's a good thing. Yeah, I think the one thing with that, actually, just digressing slightly as well, is he, he's mentioned or referred to the Albion as the Albion rather than Brighton. It's yeah. not that often that happens in the major media outside of local, um, which is something that's always bugged me a little bit. Um, we were lucky enough to have Tim Vickery on as a guest uh, last year. And he said that he, when, when we referred to the Albion during the conversation, he, he didn't realise we referred to ourselves as the Albion. So the, the level to which... I know he's over in South America, doesn't watch as many English games maybe now, but, you know, the level to which people don't refer to us as that mm-hmm. is, it seems quite disappointing, really. And I, I know you, you've done it and you're summarising on various um, programmes, you've, you've thrown that in. But um, I, I try to do it on the Premier it. League shows that I do. I do try to call us yeah. the Albion and, and the rationale I have for people, and it's sort of difficult these days because we're the city of Brighton and Hove. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I sort of say, well, when, you know, if you call us Brighton, you're leaving out Hove. Uh, and I believe, <laughs> although, I'm, although I was born in Brighton, I've lived most of my life in Hove. I'm back in Brighton now. But, um, you know, to me, that was kind of an important thing back in the mm. sort of old days, if you like. So, and, and in the same way, I mean, actually, I have on the Premier League side of things, I did have a little bit of a triumph because I think, when we first got into the Premier League, there was quite a big movement just to call us Brighton and it didn't really matter. And we were sort of initially on tables and things, whether it actually went out that way, I'm not sure. But, you know, the, the tables I was seeing early on just said Brighton on them and things like that. And I was very sort of strong on, no, no, we're Brighton and Hope Albion. So, so I mean, you know, I'm not saying everyone does it, but you'll probably notice if you watch any of the Premier League shows, um, so things like Premier League Reviewer do quite frequently, the first reference, I will pretty much always call us Brighton and Hove Albion. Uh, and then and then because it's a very much there for an international audience, I do then tend to call us Brighton more than I call us Albion. But um, mm-hmm. just because I think you're right, I don't think around the world we are probably when you say Albion, it might be a bit confusing because they probably think of West Bromwich Albion. But um, yeah, this is the problem. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I try to educate them. I do drop in the odd Albion here and there. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> um, and speaking of your career, then, so so how did that all start? Were you firstly, were you always hoping to do something along the lines of what you do, and did it change at uh, some point? Were you thinking of getting into the newspaper side of it first, or how did it all evolve, Dave? I think the thing is, I wanted to be. I used to listen avidly. I used to follow sport avidly, all sorts of sport. I'd watch anything. I think, like a lot of people. Um, you know, sort of, of of around our age. I mean, back in those days when Grandstand was on and World of Sport, you kind of watch, there wasn't much sport on TV, was there? So you'd watch anything, you know. So one minute you'd be sitting there watching, uh, um, well, it was never football, really, was it? Most of the time it wasn't football, um, particularly on a Saturday afternoon, apart from the scores coming in. But you'd yeah. be mainly there for that sort of fix of the scores coming in later in the day. But you'd watch a, a bit of horse racing if you had to, a bit of log rolling from Canada <laughs> or lumberjacks climbing, the <laughs> banger racing from Wimbledon, all that sort a of stuff. A bit of giant haystacks and Big Daddy as oh, well. Oh, the wrestling. Actually, I used to enjoy yeah. the wrestling. Yeah, my man yeah. was big into that. So, yeah, we used to watch a lot of the wrestling. Yeah, Mick McManus. Um, so, yeah, so I was kind of, I was always into sport and the radio side of it. I think, I, yeah, I wanted to be a journalist because at around about, the age of 13, 14, I can remember saying to the careers advisor, oh, yeah, I'd like to be a journalist. And the careers advisor said to me, well, everyone wants to be a journalist, son. 
um, and thought I should be an accountant or something like that. So at which point I completely ignored the careers advice. He probably did me the biggest favour um, by not helping me at all because um, I got in touch with Radio Sussex, as I think it might have still been Radio Brighton, then a guy called Richard Brock. I remember I went and had a day's work experience with him and that sort of whetted the appetite for radio a little bit. Um, and from there, um, I did some stuff for a guy called Alan Huntley, who uh, used to live out in Salt Dean. I, I, I may not be around anymore, poor old Alan. But um, yeah, so I, I had a lot to thank him for because that was a, uh, a little organisation called Sports Broadcast for Hospitals. And they used to do radio commentary into the local hospitals. So I made these tapes at home just using like a normal cassette machine about whichever team we were playing with a bit of music and the history of the town and stuff, all very rudimentary stuff. Um, and after doing that for a couple of months, I suppose, they sort of said, oh, you know, we're, we're missing a commentator. Do you fancy doing a bit of commentary? So, of course, I was like, well, yes, please. Um, I was only about 16, I suppose, at this point. And I went and I um, did a bit of commentary for them at the game and through that met some of the local media guys and they were like I had you fancy reading the local football scores on Southern Sound as was back then Uh, and it just went from there really so I used to read the local football scores and just at Southern Sound I mean in many ways for all the fantastic things I've been lucky enough to do but I still look back really fondly on those sort of few years at Southern Sound with a year at Radio Sussex where I actually covered Albion home and away um but yeah, certainly those years at Southern Sound and the guys there, a guy called Kevin Cotton, who was actually a, a bank clerk, um, but used to do the Saturday afternoon show with Chris Copsey, who sadly um, you know, passed away far too soon. Um, Tim Locke, Mark Sandow, just various people. Mick Cleary was there at that time, who's now a very famous rugby correspondent. He's sort of one of the top rugby correspondents in the country. Um, so yeah, just brilliant days there, really. Just, just Southern Sound. And it was you know, pay peanuts, obviously. Um, but that's kind of how I worked my way in. And then I did Albion home and away in the season that we won promotion when Gary Nelson scored all the goals. That was for Radio Sussex because Simon Brotherton, who I went to school and sixth form with, went off to university. Um, and he used to read the sports bulletins on Radio Sussex. And he went a year before me. We, we did the same course at university as well, same university and everything. Uh, but he went a year before me and they said to me, you know, do you fancy coming and reading the sports news? So I used to do the breakfast show sport and the afternoon sport and my dream job, which was the thing I was aiming to do, you know, by the time I was 50 or something was to cover the Albion. And so I'd sort of done that for a season when I was about 18. So it was like, wow, now what? <laughs> you know? But amazing. I mean, what a baptism of fire really to cover the Albion home and away, you know? Um, yeah. And those guys were fantastic. Um, you know, Gary Nelson. Gary Nelson always sticks in the mind. Just a smashing guy, Gary Nelson. Couldn't have been more helpful. Um, the older pros, Doug Rugby and people. I mean, everyone was good to me. And I think it, it, someone said to me at the time that it was obviously a very strange situation because I was only about 18. Um, but for a lot of the players, I was their kind of age. So I didn't find it too difficult to... I don't identify with them and vice versa. And the older pros, Alan Kerbishley was there then, you know, I mean, Alan was just a tremendous fella as well. So it, just, it was just a really good bunch of people. I had a few run-ins with Barry Lloyd. I got banned from the ground, which was, you know, <laughs> a rite of passage. Uh, yeah, a lot of people didn't get on with Barry Lloyd, did they? And 
Well, Barry was, uh, I look back on it now, you know, and as I say, I was 18 and, you know, Barry was obviously a very experienced football man. And I'm sure he thought, what on earth is like, you know, this, this kid is here sort of reporting on these matches. What on earth does he know? And obviously looking at it at the age I am now, you probably think, well, yeah, you're right, Barry. I mean, what did I know? You know, at 18, what did I know? But I did try not to be overly critical of players and that sort of stuff. I, I, I always tried to sort of not really express too much of an opinion. I was fairly old school in that way about, and particularly about individual players. I, you know, you kind of have to say whether the team's not playing well or the team's, um, you know, having a good game today. But I tried not to get too much into stuff about individual players because I took the view then, and to a large extent, I take the view now a lot of the time of, you know, well, yeah, what what do I know really? You know, I, I sort of saw my job to be to get information and pass that on and to seek the opinions of people that knew what they were talking about, um, which is kind of an approach that has diminished really in the day, in, in the age of Twitter and the sort of celebrity pundit. But um, yeah, so do you want to know why I was banned? Yeah, um, I, it's I, my next question, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Go I'm trying to remember. Please. I think... <laughs> I think the running I had with Barry was, and, and I've met him many times since, and we've always gotten well since, you know, so it was kind of water under the bridge. Um, he was very close to Stephen Rook, who was the secretary at the time. Uh, and Steve was the sports uh, editor at Radio Sussex. So he was the guy who put me on the matches. And uh, we, I think the reason I got banned, Doug Rugby phoned me up. Doug Rugby had a falling out with Barry Lloyd and he phoned me up and basically said I'm never going to play from again because um, in those days it was different to now I mean you, you can't get near players or anything these days you know it's very difficult press officers and everything else I used to phone up Barry every day back then and just say anything going on Barry you know that was kind of part of the job um, and he'd tell you or wouldn't tell you um, depending on his mood um, but Doug Rugby phoned me up and said like I'm going to put in a transfer request you know I've had it with Barry you know blah 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 whatever the reason was well, of course, this went down like a lead balloon with Barry, really. So I got dragged into his office with Stephen Rook and um, we kind of sat there. Um, um, you know, Barry basically lambasted me as if I was one of his sort of 17-year-old apprentice players uh, that was, <laughs> you know, that, that had not cleaned the boots properly or something and gave me a roasting Um I don't, I don't think I'm a particularly arrogant person, but I sort of held my ground and kind of said, well, I'm sorry, Barry, but the problem here is that you're not my boss. Um, you know, my job is, I was very principled, you know, being a sort of 18-year-old, yeah. I was kind of like strong on my journalistic principles and like, you're not going to tell me what I can and can't say. Um, so I seem to remember he probably shouted at me and threw me out the office more or less. Uh, and then I found out I was banned. But... But Steve Rook sort of had glossed it all over. He, he said to me, like, quietly, you know, a couple of days later, he said, well, actually, when you went out of the office, he said, he burst out laughing and just looked at Steve and went, what are we going to do about him? So, and Rookie said, well, you knew what you like, Barry, but the point is, if you ban him, um, we won't put anyone else on the game this weekend. And, like, you'll stand on the roof of the radio car and do it over the wall from the East End or something. You know, we can't let you ban him. Um, yeah. So the ban, I don't think, lasted to the next match. I think I was allowed. I was sort of allowed in. But and I met Barry many times since, and you know, uh, probably like a lot of Albion fans back then, probably didn't have a great opinion of Barry Lloyd as a manager. Particularly, I mean, he was there a long time, wasn't he? It was a bit boring, and we, you know, we had players coming in from non-league that people just thought weren't up to it, and everything else. Yeah. 
with a wider perspective now, you look back on it and you think, well, actually, you know what, Barry Lloyd, I think, did a pretty good job, really. You know, I mean, he did a pretty amazing job. A lot of those non-league guys didn't make it, but one or two did. Yeah. And clearly he was the guy that sort of had to wind the club down, wasn't he? You know, that, that was the kind of, we'd had the sort of glory days and the FA Cup final and everything. And he was he was sort of taking us down a level, but still trying to keep us going. And then we had the great season with Burn and Small and everything as well, which unfortunately just mm. didn't quite work out. But the decline after that would suggest he, he knew what he was at, really, Barry. Yeah. I had a couple of experiences of meeting Barry Lloyd. As I say, same generation as you growing up watching the game. So I was on the North Stand. I'm pretty sure we sung Barry here a few times before we yeah. get into our, you know, the later, the later stages. Um, but I think, yeah, overall, I kind of, I think I was willing him to do well and to, mm. to be more popular in the end because I, I could see a little bit of what he was doing. I don't think I fully appreciated. I must admit. But many years later, by um, it's a bit of a surreal situation, really. But I, I was friends with a Brazilian guy called Ronaldo, um, musical, right. who did play <laughs> football as well. <laughs> Shame he didn't sign him. <laughs> Yeah, he he's occasionally listens to this. Hello, Ronaldo, if you're listening. Um, yeah, he, I think he played third or fourth tier Brazilian football. Um, whatever standard that is, I don't know, but he's pretty good probably. Yeah. And he was running a British futsal team. Uh, firstly, just Lond- a London-based one, and then eventually the England team, which was actually just a load of Brazilians living in England. Um, yeah. And um, they had a really good player that he was saying, oh, do you, do you know anyone at the club? Do you reckon? Because he was into... The Albion, I was getting him to, to follow them, uh, to follow us as his uh, team. And um, he's, they had this left back that was really good. So I said, all right, well, I'll see if I'll contact the cover. I don't know anyone there. And Barry yeah. Lloyd was doing scouting at the time. This is, yeah. I don't know what it was, a decade ago, maybe, something like yeah. that. And um, yeah, he, and to my surprise, he went, yeah, I'll come up and have a look. And they were they were playing a, um, a conciliatory game. 11 aside, even though that's not what they generally did as a futsal team, but they played an 11 side game, a Brazilian representative 11 against the Met Police because, of right. course, there was the shooting in Stockwell. So oh, it was quite, yeah. a, quite a long time after that, but it was some kind of reconciliatory thing. And, uh, and that match was going on. So I said, there's that game going on. Come up and see him playing that as it would be in an 11 side game. Better, better view. And to my surprise, he went, yeah, OK. And he came up. I met him. It was all a bit surreal. Nothing, nothing came of the... Uh, the scouting trip from his yeah. point of view in the end a few few reasons why but um yeah I sort of met him there and that was that and then I happened to go to an Albion news game in Barnet at the old ground they had Underhill because I live up this way quite near here yeah. uh, quite near there and um sure enough I was in the main stand and Barry Lloyd was there yeah <laughs> so I said, really? oh, hello Barry do you remember me and we ended up watching the game next to each other which was a bit surreal really for a guy yeah. I'd watch from the terraces and um I didn't mention I've been singing Barry Who to him in the past <laughs> and I left that bit out. But those guys like Barry, you know, I mean they are the people yeah. and I think he features in that book The Nowhere Men as well, which is yeah. about Google Scouts and things like that. And yeah, Barry, I mean I, I think last time I saw him I bumped into him probably at uh Brentford it might have been, somewhere like that. And and I, I may well have been working, I think. Um and yeah, that was obviously quite a few years on from when he was a manager there. And he that, that those people are the people that make football what it is, really, aren't they? You know, people like Barry that go around, and I think he knew a player. I, mean, I don't know how much he had to do with, you know, all of the signings that we had, but if you look back at some of the players that we did pick up in his time at the club, if we say that, you know, a lot of that was down to Barry or certainly he had the final say on it, I mean, we picked up some, you know, pretty good players, didn't we? I mean, Johnny Byrne, fantastic. Oh, yeah. You know, Mike Small, Robert Codner, Nicky Bissett. I mean, we we did pick up some 
some very decent players over the years, really. So I think he, yeah, uh, I, I, I've, as I say, like a lot of Albion fans, I think at the time, you know, it, it was all a big come down, wasn't it, from being in the first division. And, and Chris Catlin was very popular and I loved Chris Catlin. I, mean, I used to be a ball boy at the Goldstone in the sort of Chris Catlin days when he was a manager. Oh, right. Brilliant. Um, and then sort of interviewed him sort of many times over the years when I first broke into it as well. Um, so I was very much a sort of a Chris Catlin fan, I suppose, and it all felt a bit kind of got into a bit of a rut with Barry after, because obviously Chris Catlin got that sacking where it felt as if, you know, if we'd have had the playoffs, we'd have been in the playoffs and we didn't really feel like we were doing that badly. Um, yeah, I think the general consensus is that was a harsh sacking. Most people of that era who remember it would would remember, yeah, being pretty upset at the time that yeah. he was sacked, Chris. Yeah, seemed, yeah. seemed a shame not to keep the continu- continuity going and see where he could have taken us. But another down-to-earth guy. I mean, can you imagine Chris Catlin now? When I think when I think back on Chris Catlin, obviously as, as a manager, I was just kind of there as a ball boy. So, but once I started covering it, you know, he was working. His, the way I would get to see him was, you'd think, oh, I, who can I speak to about this? Oh, Chris Catlin, the bigot on this. I'll nip down the seafront and pop in his rock shop. I mean. It's not going to happen with Pep Guardiola, is it? Ten years down the line, you know. I mean, just it's such a different environment, and and yeah. someone like Barry, you know, just a proper proper person, you know. I mean, just a just a normal person. I mean, it's been been such a difference, um, just very different to now. I, I don't know any of the the current lads, and I would say that the from my experience of footballers, probably. You could count on one hand the footballers that I've really sort of disliked over the years because even a lot of the big stars, you just kind of think, actually, they're just normal blokes. I mean, they get paid a lot of money, but that's kind of not their fault, is it? If someone's going to offer you an absolute fortune. Most of them I've met have been, you know, very good, some better than others. But um, I'll tell you the one that sticks in the mind is plenty stick in the mind, but um, it didn't surprise me at all to see Petr Cech uh, the other week at the Chelsea game with all the European Super League stuff, doing what he did and getting out the coach yeah. and trying to talk to the fans and stuff. Because, you know, someone like him, I mean, that guy is a massive star. Um, I remember going back a long time, but when Chelsea were at the sort of, you know, Petacek was at the kind of peak of his powers and Chelsea were winning the league all the time and everything. Um, and it was a difficult club to go to, Chelsea. We, we In those days, we went there. And on this particular day, we waited something like about six or seven hours for the interviewees to turn up um, because it was they'd gone to the training ground and we were at Stamford Bridge and then they kind of came to Stamford Bridge for us but then like oh we're going to do training first and so we spent the whole day waiting um, and I remember we did Didier Drogba and uh, Petr Cech Didier Drogba sort of best forgotten because he couldn't really be bothered even when he did turn up um, but Petr Cech walked into the room and the first thing he said was oh hi I'm Peter and when a player like Petr Cech does something like that, obviously my answer was, yeah, I know who you are. You know, thanks ever so much. Come and sit down. But that, that to me was always, it's such a simple thing, but that politeness of certain yeah. players, um, to, to say that, to introduce yourself, uh, and then to maybe hang around even for a minute afterwards and just say, oh, you know, guys, how long is it going to take you to pack up? Where are you back off to tonight? Or anything like that. You kind of think, yeah, this guy's a, you know, a proper person who's got an appreciation of your job and everything else. So, and, and a lot of them are like that. So that that's always been a nice thing, really. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's good to hear. Actually, that's really good to hear. And you mentioned some of the players you've sort of come across. This is because, of course, in terms of your career, you've 
um, from your routes through the Sussex um, systems, so to speak, you've gone into covering national football and and beyond into Europe, haven't you? Tell us about your, for anyone that doesn't know about your uh, your main features in terms of your career, because you've worked on the EFL a lot. So that, that's where a lot of people will remember you from, football yeah, league so show and that sort of thing. Yeah, now, quest, of course. Well, racing through, so from radio, so I did the radio stuff. Then I worked at, um, I broke into TV uh, down in the West Country and I was a news journalist at that point. Uh, and then I came back up, the guy that was the sports editor uh, down in Plymouth where they lost their franchise became the sports editor at Meridian, um, mm. I called Pete Barraclough. And so he got me in, uh, I was actually, I went off sort of on a, like a gap year travelling and I got this phone call saying, do you fancy coming up to Meridian and doing the Brighton games for us? Uh, and that was literally what I did. So through that, I got more and more work at Meridian. Then I had sort of my own show on Meridian, which was called A406, which lasted about three series, I think. And that got me noticed by ITV. So that was off the back of Euro 96, really, when football was kind of becoming a lot more fashionable and exciting. That got me noticed by ITV. Uh, and then I worked for ITV Sport really until through till about 2004, a bit longer than that as a freelance as well. Did Champions League, worked on on the ball as a features reporter for them. Uh, and then from there, uh, when that sort of work started to dry up, I then became like the touchline reporter for Channel 5 for about well, 10 years or so, something like that. So covering Europa League. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's it. And then through all of that, the Football League. So I used to present Nationwide Football League Extra after Gabriel. The one everyone remembers is Gabriel Clark. I did it for about 18 months after Gabriel. So <laughs> but uh, there you go. Gabriel did the Hereford game. I was on the terraces in those days. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so I did that. And then that's where my sort of football league connection came in. So I've, I've been on that football league program in whatever guise it's been in now for since 1998, I think. So, yeah, yeah. a long time. Feels like it's been on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, been, it's been on. So it's BBC. I think it was on ITV as well at one point. It was in Quest as it is now, which is a decent, I think, a decent package for the EFL it's very difficult yeah. to to get everything into one program I think they do a good job to be honest and you're still on that as of today aren't you well, yeah I still, now. still do that now on Quest yeah so I followed it from I say I used to present it on ITV and then it went to uh went to the BBC so I kind of followed it across there um worked on it for the BBC and then it went to Channel 5 didn't it I think for a while um yes yeah I think so yeah uh, yeah we did it on Channel 5 for a few seasons and then yeah now Quest who uh, you know, for them, they, they they put a lot into sort of making it the best show they can. I think all of these shows, the nature of it has changed so much because obviously when we did it back in, say, 1998, you know, I was uh, presenting it and we used to do the sort of links, the kind of classic as the teams come out the tunnel, we'll do the links from the ground, interview the managers at the ground and everything, and then package it all up to go out on, I think, a Sunday morning. Uh, no, we used to... Uh, it must have gone out on a Monday night, I think, in those days. And then later on, it would go out on the Sunday. Um, but it was very different because that was the only place you could see the Football League back then. And, of course, now it's quite hard with the Highlights programme these days to come up with a package that, you know, is an attractive package for a large audience because everything's going out either, you know, it's the goals. some of the goals are going out as the games are going on these days and it's all on Twitter and... Um, so it's pretty difficult. So I think I think the market for that type of program, unfortunately, has just you know shrunk over the years. Um, but they still turn out you know a, a nice sort of rounded package. If that's 
if what you want is to get across everything in the Championship League One, League Two, it's all there, you know. Yeah, I think definitely adding the not the top twenty guys in there is a is a really good touch because it's the yeah. fans slash sports journalists up and coming who've done a podcast, got recognised, and they've been given a slot as well, which is really good actually because yeah. I think their their insight is brilliant and it. Yeah, no, no blame on the the ex players involved that are there as pundits, but those guys know more about the deeper. They can do a deeper dive basically into the analysis because well, the they EFL, do it all the time, don't they? The the EFL is very hard to analyse, isn't it? Because mm. you know you've got seventy two clubs, and so that's a lot of clubs to be across. It's a bit easier in the Premier League, and I think a lot of the analysis, even in the Premier League, um, you know, of the twenty clubs, is probably only you know, eight eight or nine of those clubs where you would feel sometimes that the, the people analysing it are talking from a position of real authority. You know, I think once they dip down to Brighton and West Brom and Fulham, uh, unless they've got a link to that club, and, and a lot of these guys, you know, they do work very hard at it. I'm not saying they just roll up and they haven't done any research or anything like that because, you know, they will put a lot of research into it. Um, but I think, for instance... As a good example, um, as someone that watches the Albion week in, week out, I've probably got a very different opinion on, say, Graham Potter's position and whether Graham Potter's been under pressure this season to most of the people I would work with in the national media, you know, who think that Brighton have been in terrible relegation trouble every season pretty much since they've been in the Premier League and we've always been fretting and, you know, well, Graham Potter must have been hanging on by a thread this season. Um as a Brighton fan, I'm, I'm kind of, well, I don't think so. You know, I, I, A, we've never been in the, the bottom three at any point, apart from about the first two weeks that we got into the Premier League. Yeah. Um, this season, yeah, we're, we're in a relegation battle, but we're seven points clear of it. You know, at, at what point are you actually in the relegation battle? I mean, I would consider us to be properly in the relegation battle if we were where Fulham are or if we'd been in the bottom three, you know. We've always, it seems, in the Premier League, just had enough to keep a few points between ourselves and the real problems. So, um, yeah, so that's the difference, isn't it? It, it, But it is hard to be an expert on every club, you know, um, unless you watch them week in, week out. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think only the time when we we lost the games to Bournemouth and Cardiff when things were really going pear-shirt, that's the only time I've really felt um, nervous about us. And I've been quite relaxed most of the rest of the time. As you said, the perspective is different from us as Albion fans to to maybe the national media. It's interesting how it's different. Do do you, as, as an Albion fan and or as a man working in the industry, get annoyed with the, uh, the biased coverage in terms of, of, uh, time spent speaking about the, the various teams when we're up against a side such as the Everton match it all seemed to be about Everton um, in that game and there was plenty of time there wasn't many huge events in the match there weren't, weren't any big talking points so yeah. it seemed to me there was plenty of time to give even debate about what Graham Potter needs to do going forward what um, what Ancelotti needs to do but it seemed to be very Everton centric the pundits you know yeah. usually they've got in a Brighton themed pundit there like Bobby or somebody I, I, I find that frustrating. Yeah, I must admit, I find that frustrating in this country. I mean, a lot of the stuff um, that I see where I'm working, because I, I, I work um, on quite a bit of uh, stuff for Premier League productions, who obviously that's primarily for sort of overseas consumption, although shows like Premier League Review and Premier League World and some of the ones I work on um, are, are carried in this country by Sky and BT. Um, but the... 
so, so on, on the on the overseas coverage, I, I sort of almost find it forgivable, if you know what I mean. Because mm. the the bottom line is, I mean, you know, we've been in the Premier League for four years. For two years of that, we weren't really the most exciting team to to watch with the best will in the world. Um, I think we've made a few waves this season with the way we're playing, and I think that's probably got people to to sit up and take notice, even though we're not quite getting the results. Um, but yeah, there's no doubt really overseas, you know, we are not the massive draw that some of the other clubs are. So, but yeah, I did get very frustrated in this country when uh, sometimes it, it does feel, uh, one, one that springs to mind is the, the back end of the Arsenal game when Neil Mope, when, when we beat Arsenal at the back end of last season. Um, and I felt off the back of that match, there was a sort of a certain lack of flexibility. Um, I can see both sides. It's quite difficult to, you know, Make, making TV programs, particularly live TV programs, is mm. is really not very easy. You know, there's a lot going on. Um, uh, there are a lot of things happening, and so it can be quite hard to see the wood for the trees. Mm. But in that instance, it sort of seemed that like what was actually a very good win for us kind of almost just got forgotten in talking about Arsenal, and and, and also in kind of uh, you know a bit of controversy about. Mopé's clash with the keeper and that sort of thing, and yeah. Hmm. So yeah, but as I say, it's not easy. So I can see can see both sides of it, but um, it does frustrate me if it frustrates me in situations in the build up to a game. I do feel that you should have someone uh, that represents both sides. You know, I think if you've got a panel that is all based has an in depth knowledge of one particular team, I don't think that's obviously you're setting yourself up to fail a little bit before the start there so um yeah, yeah so it's probably yeah. the easiest way around it is like you say to have a Bobby Zamora or you know if you've got Bobby Zamora or, or Steve Sidwell or someone like that then you know you're going to at least get someone who's going to put the the Brighton side of things and also have an idea of what's actually happening at the club hmm. yeah exactly and as I said we've got we've got people who are articulate enough to do it who mm. could represent the Albion side. But one of those frustrations, another one was the result of the weekend. Um, we'll come on to that in part two. Probably won't talk about that for too long because it's not worthy <laughs> of too much discussion. Um, but that, that's the plan in part two, to talk about that and a few of the rather large stories that have uh, cropped up in the last uh, week or so. Um, quite a bit to talk about there. We won't go too deep into it because otherwise we'll be here for hours. But um, we'll, we'll do that when we come back after this short break. So welcome back to part two, where me, Russell, is still with him, Dave, Dave Beckett. Great to have you with us as our guest, Dave. Thank yeah, you. Um, go on, yeah. Excellent to be here. <laughs> excellent. Good, good. I'm glad you are. One thing probably not so great is to talk about the game at the weekend. Uh, we'll, we'll get on to that next, shall we? We'll get it over with. Yeah. <laughs> um, our, our, um, well, our problem with the bottom four sides, we've now played all eight games against the current bottom four, and we haven't won any of them. Um, the latest being the 1-0 defeat at Sheffield United on Saturday night. Um, we started with Sanchez in goal. We have Webster, Duncan, Veltman, with Grosh and Moda back in the uh, in the wing-back roles. Lallana and Basuma in midfield, Trossard further forward, and Morpé and Welbeck up front. Um, as I said, 1-0 the result in the end, and what, what was your take on the game? I, I, over to you, Dave. What, what did you make of it? We, I think the trouble with those games now is that I mean, I'm not 
really so worried about relegation and everything. You know, I'm not going to go crazy about it and say, oh, you know, we're terrible. It's a disgrace that we lost to Sheffield United. And, you know, because in the Premier League, if you're off it by 5%, then anyone can beat you. So, and I, and I thought Graham Potter, one of the things that he said afterwards, I thought um, was very true, where he said, you know, we're not such a good side that we can play badly and win Premier League matches. And I think that's, that's true. And I don't really think that's a criticism of the team, the club or anything else like that. That is just a fact of life when you are a club, you know, in the stage of their development that Brighton are with the financial resources that the Albion have. That's a fact. You know, you've got to be right on it. And our players have it almost harder, you know, I think in some ways than, you know, the players that play for Chelsea and Manchester City and everything else, because they have got to be absolutely at their maximum every single match. And and I've got to say that over the four seasons now that we've been in the Premier League, I reckon for all but maybe three or four matches, they pretty much have been, haven't they? I I think the players, it's hard to criticise the players too much because I think really that... Okay, you can say they should put the effort in because they're in the Premier League. Of course they should. But I think they turn in pretty consistently strong performances week in, week out, most of the time. So I don't think we should go overboard about, you know, losing to Sheffield United. I'm just annoyed, really, with where we are in the table, more than anything. Not yeah, not, not worried about us going down, just really annoyed that we are below teams that we should be above. Yes. That, yes. That's the bottom line. You know, we should be four or five places at least higher up the table. You know, there's no reason really we should be below Wolves this season, Palace, you know, Newcastle, certainly Burnley. Yeah. I think we should be above all four of those. Um, If you believe the XG, I mean, I think we're we're supposed to have something like, is it 54 points or something by now? I mean, I'm not not, not a huge believer in stats, but it, but it does tell a bit of a story. I think, you know, it's, it's, you can see that that's pretty much true, but you can see, you, you don't need XG to tell you that, we just need to finish our chances, really. And it was just the same story again, wasn't it? It was the same story again, really. Um, uh, people yeah. get frustrated with Neil Mope. I mean, I think his record for a player, for, for what we paid for him, for a player who's come up from the championship, is probably not bad, really. You know, it's, mm. it's very difficult. And he's still a young player, and I think he's improved. I think you can... I think he's... Movement now, I think since he's been playing with Danny Welbeck, to me, it looks like his movement is better. I think he's becoming maybe a more intelligent player. That miss, you know, I thought was something that perhaps he's done once or twice. Um, here's me. I mean, I wouldn't have scored it. But, um, <laughs> but, but <laughs> yeah, I think he's done once or twice, you know, where he's kind of got sucked in. And again, perhaps this just comes with experience for the top players. Uh, he just didn't time his run quite right, did he? The ball ended up behind him. Now, you could maybe, maybe that was Jan Batch's cross. Maybe that's just that Mopé's just got a bit excited, moved a bit too early. You know, the top players just have that knack of just holding back that extra second and not making that run, and then you're running onto it. And I think we've actually seen that with Neil Mopé a few times where that ball has come across. It doesn't seem particularly good with that kind of ball across and getting his connection good. And sometimes it does seem to me that he's just a bit, he's just a bit too keen to get onto it, you know. But if that is genuinely all it is... At the age he is, and with the development that can still happen, you know, give the guy three or four years, uh, he's going to solve that, isn't he? Give him three or four months, he could solve that. So, yeah. you know, I tend to be optimistic and tend to try to look for the positives, really, in, in play. I think it's, um, 
That's a good point about Morpé, actually, because he's got 10 goals last season. He's on eight. Um, admittedly, there's a big gap after his seventh goal before that eighth goal yeah. went in, but he's on course to get 10-ish again this season. If he does make that, you know, double figures isn't too bad. He's a young lad, as you said. I think a point that you've triggered in me that I hadn't thought of before is about, um, you mentioned about Danny Welbeck. He hasn't really played a lot of games alongside an experienced yeah. striker because obviously Glenn Murray, since we've signed Morps, hasn't been, um, hasn't really featured much. And obviously this season, not yeah. at all. Um, and Welbeck, of course, this season hasn't been available for a lot of it. Um, so, you know, he's playing as the, as a young guy, but trying to gain the experience and being that figurehead himself with not too much to play off. Even the players around him, there's quite a few, younger players it's a young squad isn't it and it's going to take time I think there's lots of growth potential isn't there with him and yeah I, th- I think you're right he's, he's maybe a bit too eager to get on the end of things and and that little bit of nonchalance and composure as uh, as opposed to other things is what's missing maybe a little bit um somebody mentioned on the zoom chat we were on on watching the game on Saturday night um about quick footedness as well mm. how certain players seem to be very fast-footed um, you look at even Dan Juma, who's playing for Bournemouth back in the Championship this season. Very quick feet. You look at Salah, obviously, as a really obvious example, but loads of other players besides you can mention do have that quick footedness, and maybe, maybe that's something that's slightly not quite there for for Morps as well. Um, I, I think one of the things that Arsene Wenger used to um, talk about in the Premier League was was you know having pacey players, and the thing is that gets you. If, yeah, if Neil Pope, if Neil Mope was a bit quicker, then that would sort of immediately solves a lot of problems. Isn't it? Fast players cause problems, don't they? I mean, look at Tarek Lamptey. You know, he's not the he's not the finished article, fantastic player. He's mm. clearly not the finished article. He couldn't possibly be the finished article at the age he is. But look at the absolute chaos he causes. And, and pace does cause those problems. And, and you do get the impression, although I think I saw the other day, there was a, a statistic, I think, at sort of half-time, which kind of surprised me that... Um, they they put up sort of Mopé's top speed or something. And, and at one point he'd hit sort of, I've worked it out, it was in kilometres an hour, but I think it was like 21, 22 miles an hour or something. And I was thinking, we, we saw this guy, oh, he's, he's not really quick enough. He's running at 22 miles an hour, you know. So he's not exactly a slouch, is he? You know, the problem yeah. is, I mean, these players are, you know, the, the defenders in the Premier League, I mean, these players, and okay, Sheffield United, you could argue a more of a sort of a championship team than a Premier League team. But you know these these players are quick. They're good players, and and uh, yeah, I mean, you can't make too many excuses. Maybe I go the other way too much. Sometimes perhaps I prefer to make too many excuses for players. But but I would I, I don't think, as you say, if he scores ten goals this season, you'd hope he'd get a few more than that. But it's kind of the return that you might well get from a player that you've brought up from the championship. You've spent that sort of money on. Look at Rian Brewster who I think last summer, everyone was saying, you know, and I'm sure it wasn't just us, everyone down around where we thought we would probably be was saying, oh, we've got to sign Rian Brewster. You know, he's done really well in the championships. Great pedigree. Hasn't scored a goal, has he? Hasn't scored a single goal. You know, so, and again, it doesn't necessarily, uh, he's clearly not a terrible player because he did well at Swansea. It doesn't necessarily mean he's a terrible player. It means he's had a bad season and it means it's probably come a bit too soon for him. But, it's really hard to find strikers that are going to score you more than, you know, to, to find a striker that will score you 15 goals in the Premier League is really tough, isn't it? And it's really tough if you are looking at the sort of £20 million mark. If you can go out and spend 40 50 and buy someone that's 
maybe already played in the Champions League or something, then perhaps it's a bit different. But it, it's yeah. it, it's just difficult. It's a tough, it's a really tough yeah. league, is the bottom line. Yeah. And anyone who quotes the 20 goal a season thing is, is actually thinking of the wrong thing. That's a different division because if you look at who gets 20 goals in the Premier yeah. League, they're world-class players playing for the top six. Exactly. <laughs> exactly, that's it. And I think that, that I think that is the big thing that hangs over strikers all the time at the clubs in the bottom half of the table is always, I think there is this perception. We do, you do have that sort of natural 20 goal mark in your mind. And in the other divisions, that does carry some weight. But like you say, once you get into the Premier League, I mean, most strikers in the Premier League are pretty happy to get into double figures, really. Um, Hmm. And then you get the exceptions. Someone like Danny Ings, obviously, is a bit of an exception because he'll get up around that sort of, you know, 20 goal mark in a, in a team that's not not one of the big hitters. Um, but yeah, there aren't many players like Danny Ings around. It's as simple as that. And if we had Danny Ings, where would we be? Ninth, maybe? Eighth? You would think this yeah. season with the chances they create. I also yeah. sometimes, it, and it's not a weird fetish or anything, this, I do sometimes try to transpose Neil Mopé's head onto other players. So... <laughs> <laughs> but but like if you're what what I mean is if you're watching match of the day I think we're very we're always very harsh on our own teams and you know you watch other matches and you might see you know Raheem Sterling for instance miss three or four chances but of course when you play for Manchester City it doesn't really matter because you get another chance two minutes down the line and you know you're going to win anyway you know at some point one of them's going to go in yeah. we get someone like Neil Mope might get you know three good chances in a game. And we're desperate for him to take those chances. There's the pressure in a way, you know, the expectations are higher on this guy. And this is not just Mopé, you know, let's broaden it out and just talk about strikers generally at Brighton and players generally at Brighton. When they get a big chance, the expectation is what's higher on them. You know, they've got to score it because it's not like Liverpool. You're not going to get another five chances before half time necessarily, even though we do create quite a lot. But, you know, Mo Salah will get loads of good chances. And you know what? He misses some of them. He puts them over the bar. He hits them straight at the keeper. He puts them wide. But he'll still score three a game because he has seven opportunities. You know, so... Exactly. We, we do judge them harshly sometimes. Yeah, I think so. And and Morpé in particular is a, is quite an emotional player as well. So, you know, which means he's obviously going to be a very much confidence player. And yeah. It's it's it is very difficult. You're right, absolutely right about chances and ratios of goals converted. You know, uh, if if you started doing in depth analysis of the stats, you'd find some interesting, uh, I think, findings among amongst the uh, the details there. Um, but yeah, I mean, for example, this is never going to happen. But if we had Aguero in the team, um, yeah. it might be a bit different. But that's because he's obviously he is a world class player. That's a different yeah. level. But also he would have the confidence. Um, so there's two elements in there. Composure more... as well, isn't it? I mean, the, the composure yeah. that someone like Sergio Aguero has. And yeah. I do think that with our finishing quite often, the one real difference you would say, and actually it's where Adam Lallana has disappointed me in a way with his finishing. And maybe that shows a difference because I think Adam Lallana, you would, I'm, I'm sure, he, you know, when he was playing um, sort of at, at a higher level than us and in, in, and in, in an atmosphere where chances would come along, I think he would put away some of the chances that he's had for us very easily. You know, he's he's, he's the kind of player, he's got the ability to just kind of put that ball anywhere that he wants to put it. And it's not quite, and he's finished once like that for us, I can remember, but he's had one or two chances where you think by his standards, that must be a really disappointing finish. But is that the expectation? Is that the pressure? Is that because that's the, this is the chance, you know, I've got to put this away. 
Whereas, yeah. as I say, when he's playing for Liverpool, well, if I don't score, someone else will, and I'll probably get another chance. Yeah, that's right. Well, look at the game uh, from Saturday night. It was some very typical stats. I don't, I don't go into too much detail on stats, but 69% possession. We never win games when we have that much possession, do we? It seems. <laughs> um, 17 shots to their seven, four on target to their three, uh, 12 corners, which is quite a lot, nearly all of them on the right-hand side of our attack, uh, to their two. And they committed twice as many fouls as us. So, you know, all of those stats suggest we dominated it. And yet first half was pretty terrible, I thought. Second half, we were certainly a lot better and probably, well, I'd say definitely deserved something in terms of scoring from that half. Um, but it wasn't a great performance. And um, some people mentioned uh, the name that I didn't include in that lineup because he wasn't in the team. Ben White, of course, had a ma- one match suspension due to his two yellows in the last match. Um, did we miss him, do you think, in this game? Um, because with Webster still trying to get his match sharpness back and his sort of match focus back yeah, a little I think, bit. I, I think we did miss him because, well, he's a good player, isn't he? But I think it's the knock-on effect throughout the team as well, isn't it? Because mm. um, we ended up so gross, moved back to right wing back, didn't he? And, mm. you know, as you say, Webster, Webster's not been sort of quite on it since he came back in. I mean, if we could have, obviously, if Ben White had played, then Joel Valtman could have played, I suppose, in that the, the right-hand side of that defence. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think it's a knock-on effect through the team, really, rather than perhaps than you know just Ben White in himself. But he is obviously a very good player. But that wing-back situation has been a real problem for us, isn't it? You know, losing Solly March has been um, that that that's been a real issue down down that side. And then on the right-hand side, you're having Pascal Gross there. I mean, I think he's done a pretty good job. But you obviously saw with the goal at Sheffield United. Um, he wasn't the only offender, was he? Because I think it was Webster gave the ball away and then Fountain's clearance wasn't very good. And then, you know, Pascal Gross just didn't look like a defensive-minded player at all, did he? I don't know what he was trying to do. It sort of seemed to take a swing with his right and it sort of hit him on his left. And you just think, you, you, you know, maybe someone who's not quite as skillful as Pascal Gross might have been better off in that situation because they probably would have just <laughs> smashed it somewhere. Whereas he sort of tried to do something and really just played it straight to David McGoldrick. So it was like, oh, you know, what, what do you yeah. do? Um, and I, I, I agree with that. And I think also there was a little bit of a lack of a threat on the right side as a result of the way we were set up. Because without, without White being there, who has mm. tended to get forward on occasion, maybe more yeah. so before than recently, but also Grosh, of course, as well. If you, mm. if you know White's in there, then maybe you're, you're more comfortable going forward if you're Pascal and, and getting into more advanced positions. Absolutely, more often. yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And also, do we need in these games where we do have the possession? I mean, I suppose this is the case. It, I, I don't think that, you, you know, for someone like a Mitrovic, I don't really see fitting into our team particularly. Um, but you do wonder in the games where we have this much possession, where we can't score, whether, whether there is a case there for a different sort of type of striker to the ones we've got. Because I think our strikers work very well when the game is stretched and we can play our, you know, what is now lovely football, sometimes under Graham Potter, and we can break quickly um, and, and, you know, work the ball in some intricate way into the box. The teams we've struggled against are the ones that put, you know, 10 players in the box. And maybe that's where, you know, what a shame Glenn Murray is and, you know, five yeah. years younger. Because I think Glenn Murray, exactly. some of the games where we're so on top, I, don't, I wouldn't have said, even Glenn of a couple of years ago, although, you know, he was probably not quick enough to kind of fit into his team in the way that we want him to now. But in some of those games, like against Burnley and against Sheffield United, um, where perhaps he could just be central, just someone to poach a goal, someone to get his head on something, he just sling crosses in. 
you know, you know, if you're slinging a good cross, Glenn would put it away. Uh, with, uh, much as I love the guy, you know, I don't think I'm not advocating that Glenn Murray would have done a great job for us this season. I, I don't think there's, I don't think you can say that when you, you know, he's not mm. set the championship on fire, is he? So, um, yeah, but you're yeah. right. Him, him, just a short, short bit back in time, a couple of but, years but, but or so. Do we need a different type of striker? Perhaps, yeah. you know, for those scenarios, I don't know. Um, maybe, I wonder, maybe yeah, I mean, those type where you've got the experience, you can find the space in a, in a crowded area because there's a lot, been a lot of talk recently on amongst us uh, about crowded areas and you've, you're physically creating barriers to shots on goal but yeah. just purely by the numbers that are being attracted into the box from standard positions, standard yeah. situations. And maybe in those situations, yeah, Glenn Murray's experience of just being able to find space in a more difficult to find area uh, um, scenario would, would maybe, maybe have been the difference. He did I have do that think... knack of being in the right place at the right time, didn't he? You know, exactly, that, yeah. And, and a lot of our players, that, you know, would be a criticism, I suppose. We don't, I mean, the number of times we look like Liverpool or Manchester City as we attack and we work the ball into brilliant positions. But the one thing we don't do is we cut the ball back across the box and instead of, uh, you know, Gundogan running onto it and smashing it into the roof of the net, it goes behind everyone and, you know, gets cleared away. And it happens all the time, doesn't it? So it's just about the timing. It's that final... It's not even necessarily a bad pass sometimes. I think we get sucked into the box a bit too much sometimes. But... Hmm. you know who knows I mean the thing is if we if we've seen this I'm sure Graham Potter's you know saw it months ago so how you address it I don't know I'm sure they've been trying yeah of course Morpé had the ball cut back from substitute Ali Razor our standard yeah. substitute nowadays he did all right actually in this game he got it to the byline cut it back and that chance Morpé had it was just behind him a bit wasn't it really so how much of that is it experience of him having positioned himself better or how much it was just it wasn't quite good enough for who knows? But I do think it was a difficult chance. Lalana had a shot. Uh, Basuma had a shot which went wide instead of over, which was a nice change. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think Morpay had a shot to do that. That was pretty much all there is to say for the game. Yeah. Itself. I did of course, as well. I had the, uh... Yes. Yes. I mean, that was the big, the big news for us, wasn't it? Finally, after all these substitute appearances, mysteriously hanging around on the bench, not coming on, he finally did come on and he looked yeah. his old self to a large degree didn't he he, he looked very he much his own self because he got the ball on his left foot cut it onto his right foot and had a shot which is basically yeah. what Jose Izquierdo does which is Absolutely. he's only really got one trick hasn't he which is it's not a bad trick I wish he had a couple more sometimes and yeah. you know, that he'd yeah. go around the outside sometimes but um, yeah, it was great to see him back and I you, I can't imagine what it must be like you, you know to be someone like that who's, who's come here I know he's lived in other places in Europe and everything but you know he's South American he's moved to Brighton um it must be really disheartening and really depressing. He's been out for two years. Hmm. It must be very difficult. You know, I feel for him, really. Yeah, because you, you, that's what your life is focused in on the football, isn't it? In that scenario, hmm. I think, if you, if you haven't got much going on family-wise, I think he's got... I don't think he's married, is he, or anything like that? Well, he's got um, Peter Pig, isn't he, back in, uh, <laughs> back in South America, I think. Micro-pig, yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> but other than that, no, but I mean, it's just... Yeah. Yeah, it's disheartening. And I suppose the one thing I'd say from having been lucky enough to meet footballers is, you know, and maybe perhaps I have a different opinion to some fans. I suppose some people will say this kid, well, he earns enough money, you know, like, what, how could you be unhappy? But it doesn't make any difference to these guys, does it? Like having money in the bank, yeah, it's great. It's great when he finishes football. But at this point in his career, when he wants to be playing for his, 
you know, national team and he wants to be playing in the Premier League and everything else and you can't play in a foreign country. I don't think from, I did meet him once briefly. I mean, I don't, didn't get the impression that he's a great English speaker. He's a very quiet, sort of shy kind of fella. Um, yeah. you, you know, so I, it's got to be tough. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard that. Yeah, if you, your career is about 15 years playing, if you're lucky, and mm-hmm. two years of that, that's a big chunk um, when yeah. you said and done. Yeah, but it was, it was great to see him back anyway, certainly, and we hope he's able to come on and make some more appearances and, and do his, his trick um, to yeah. a good effect at some point. Um, who knows when. We Maybe we'll even need to rely on him at some point for a, a key key goal in a key game. Who knows? He might be the man, might he, at the back end of the season. At least it, again, it's good to just have something different, isn't it? You know, it's a different problem for for teams. So, um, and he did have absolute blistering, genuine blistering pace, didn't he? As well. So let's hope yeah. he's still got that. I mean, that was the thing. You know, in the games when you're chasing the game, that you you really knew that he could add something there because you you had that outlet down the left hand side. So yeah, maybe he'll play a big role at some point. Yeah, things things are looking pretty safe for us. We're still seven points clear. Fulham, of course, didn't play because they'd already had their game brought forward sometime in the past. So we're all on even games now, five to go. West Brom missed out with a late equaliser. They um, ended up drawing their game. So they've um, they've missed out on getting level with Fulham. So it is a seven-point gap now. Fulham is the target to avoid uh, quite clearly now rather than this, this thing of trying to work out or oh, if they win their game in there. It's a bit easier to see now. We're into the run-in. Um, quick word on that, Dave. Have you got any worries about the, us actually getting over the line here? Because I don't. I, I think we're still going to be comfortable. I think we're more suited to the the upcoming fixtures, particularly the next two, Leeds and Wolves, than we are against other sides like Sheffield United. But have you got any worries in these this upcoming sequence well, to the end? I've got worries because I've always got got worries about it because I'm that sort of person. But what I would say at this point is I think with the with the teams we've got to face. Um, as you say, you know, Wolves and Leeds, I think we can get something out of those games. We really only need one win, I think. Um, Even a point at the weekend would have made a big difference. So I have got worries, but uh, I would qualify at the moment by saying, well, I think if we don't stay up from this position, seven points clear, with the talent we've got in the squad and the way they play football and the matches that we've got left, then we probably would deserve to go down. You know, the table sort of wouldn't lie, really. So um, I, I don't know if that's a consolation or not, but if you know what I mean, I'm kind of not going to fret about it because I feel like, yeah, come on, you know, we've, we've got the talent in this squad to stay up, definitely. Yeah, yeah, I think so as well. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, as I say, I'm just annoyed. I mean, as, as I was saying earlier, I'm just annoyed that we're not higher up the table. You know, I mean, I, I actually want us to finish. I don't really want us to just stay up I want us to finish about three or four places higher and I'm hoping that that sort of motivation uh, continues you know throughout the team as well that we if we can get say a win at the weekend that we don't then kind of go oh we're right now you know it's like no come on let's really push on because I think I do I don't think that Tony Bloom's idea of being a top 10 club is high in the sky at all with this particular coach and with the core of the team that we've got but we you know, we want a good foundation for it. You don't want to finish a season flat and, you know, you want to go into the next one. I want to finish this season thinking I can't wait for next season. Yeah, exactly. And I, I feel the same. And I do think the, the higher we can finish, the better it would help try and 
attract people for next season in the transfer window. I mean, there is a lot of talk about Basuma. He's been brilliant, probably our best player again at the weekends. That's what I think he was, definitely our best player, from my opinion, anyway. Um, there is talk he might we might sell him, talk of up to 60 million, maybe. Whatever we get that's anywhere near that figure would obviously help, potentially, with restructuring where the strengths need to be uh, well, where the team needs to be strengthened. Um, obviously, a striker, possibly a left wing back, possibly another another goalkeeper back up. Um, would you agree with that? And any thoughts on that subject? Well, I think we're going to become a selling club, aren't we? Because I think that's the nature of the business. And, and to be honest, it's probably the nature of the plan. Really, you know, is to is to bring in players like Ibrahimovic. You never really want to hear that because we'd love us to, you know, sort of go on and be rivaling uh, sort of Real Madrid and the likes. Um, you know, the super clubs. Um, but I'm not sure, you know, you've got to be realistic about these things. If we can bring in players cheap and sell them for a lot of money, uh, then hopefully we can still rise up the division and, and you know, still have a good future um, without bankrupting the place. My only slight reservation is how bad has COVID been? And you may have been sort of slightly across this more with, what Paul Barber has been saying and that sort of thing. I, I must admit, I haven't uh, kind of gone in depth into this at the moment, but hmm. um, I just hope that if we do get a big fee for Yves Basuma, say this summer, that it doesn't kind of get swallowed up in basically securing the future of the club and making sure that, you know, Tony Bloom isn't having to totally, you know, dip into his pockets because to be fair, I mean, he's had to dip into his pockets quite a lot, hasn't he? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so I do agree. I hope, yeah, there's, there's definitely areas that need strengthening, and I think it would be really sad to lose Basuma if you if you could strengthen in say three positions by losing a player like that. Then maybe you have to bite the bullet and do it. What, what would be most depressing is if you lose him and then you don't strengthen because actually, you know, at the end of the day, we, we, with where we've been, we know that the most important thing is that the club is financially viable and it can continue and everything else. And so, if that was the decision that was taken, you kind of have to go along with it. Um, but uh, yeah, I hope not too much gets swallowed up in disbalancing the books. I'm just quickly sifting through a few other bits um, of news, starting with Albion news. Um, in a week where uh, the 23 has got a good one-all draw at Everton, um, there's been quite a bit of news about contracts. Albion have offered contracts to eight of their under-23s who were due to have a decision made, um, but have released five. And the eight that have got new contracts are Adam Dubois, I think it's pronounced, Mark Leonard, Tom McGill, Sam Packham, Jack Spong, uh, Ayo, I think it's Tanamowo, I'm always struggling with those ones, um, Lauren Tolai, who does look a really exciting young prospect, had a few injuries recently, and another forward, Ben Wilson. They've all been offered new deals. Five players who have been released are um, Peter Guargis, um, it's Kipras Kazu. <laughs> I've, I've really set myself up here. <laughs> Kipras Kazakulovis, I think it's pronounced. Rocco Reese, who's the goalie. Stefan Vukoye. And Danny Cashman, the striker, who I've been really impressed with. I was a little bit surprised by that one. And um, sorry to see him go, but, you know, we, we have to trust the decision-making going on there. Um, Albion's head of academy, John Morling, had said it's never an easy time and one of the mixed emotions for everyone. Obviously, there is a positive for those being given extended terms of disappointments for those that haven't. Uh, it's just one of those things, isn't it? Um, some exciting ones in there. I don't know if you get a chance to see them much, the 23s, but we have got good strength and depth building through the academy system now, haven't we, which is great to see. Well, it's been 
that, that was one of the things, wasn't it? When, when Tony Bloom spent, was it an initial sort of £15 million on that training ground and was sort of talking about the academy and everything? Yeah. I think, you, you know, clearly there, there was a plan and with the way we've seen players coming through, I, I think Brighton must be one of, uh, certainly one of the best um, sort of organised clubs in the country, isn't it? The, everything yeah. I see about the place, it's so professionally run. Uh, Paul Barber has his critics and everything. I've got to say, he strikes me as being a guy that, you, you know, like all all chief executives, I suppose, sometimes things he says, it all sounds a bit kind of corporate and a bit commercial. Well, of course it does, because it's it's a big business where they're, they're sort of turning over millions of pounds and you need someone that understands all that to run the place. But I think overall, they strike a, a pretty good balance still, really. And, and yeah, the academy system and the way the players have come through and you can see a path into the first seat for players is a, is a massive bonus for the club. You know, other clubs go out and they spend fortunes mm. on, you know, established players that do nothing or, you know, you just, you can't see any plan, can you? You know, and, and all of their players going out of contract in the same season. I mean, I'm not talking about Crystal Palace here, I might be, um, but, you know, generally, but, but you know, taking them as a random example. But no, I think, I think we are the envy of uh, quite a lot of football fans because we do have a club that seems to strike the right balance between being fan-orientated and commercially savvy and also just has a plan, basically. And I, here, here, I completely agree. I think it really is something to be proud of, isn't it? I can't believe, having had su- suffered so long with the mm-hmm. issues with stadiums and everything, now to have this, you know, it's one extreme to the other, isn't it? And I'm, I'm so glad we're in a position to be able to enjoy that, which is good. What, one of the good bit of news on the Albion front is Hope Powell has been nominated, one of six people for Manager of the Year for the women's team. They did lose 2-0, but it was away at Arsenal at the weekend. They're still sixth in the table out of 12, um, which is a brilliant turnaround from being relegation warriors, shall we say, in in the previous year. Um, They've improved, and congratulations to her on being nominated, Hope. Uh, We wish her the best in the final uh, voting on that one. You know, it's going to be tough to win it, but who knows? Um, Great great for her. Um, Quite a bit of decision or deciding times in the, in the Football League as well and in the Premier League. Last week, Sheffield United were relegated and Norwich were promoted in their stead. Then at this weekend, Watford have joined Norwich in returning at the first time of asking. I think this is largely due to the fact that they're able to hold on to a lot of their squad due to mm-hmm. lack of expenditure due, due to COVID. Um, but anyway, congratulations to, to Watford. Um, and the playoff positions have been confirmed now. Brentford, Swansea, Bournemouth and Barnsley all confirming their places this year. While Hull have gained promotion into the Championship and Bristol Rovers and Swindon have dropped into League Two. Um, other news Ryan Giggs has been charged with assaulting two women. Rather unfortunate situation there, not looking great. Uh, on the upside for Wales, they seem to be doing well in his absence anyway under Robert Page. Um, there's been the announcement of a four day multi club boycott of social media. Uh, this is obviously in response to a huge amount of racist and other abuse online. Um, I think it's kind of triggered by the Swansea announcing they were going to do a boycott of, of their own independently, and it's just escalated into a uh, into a bigger initiative, which is great to see. I think it needs something. Whether it's long enough is another matter. Any thoughts on that one, Dave? Well, why are we in that situation? I, I can't yeah. really comprehend it. You know, I, I, I just can't get my head around it really, and I. I think it's a, it's good that you know they're doing something. I'm not quite 
sure what it will achieve. I mean, do people like Twitter and Facebook, does it even make a, the tiniest dent on them if in this scenario, you know, does it, does it even register with them? I suppose it will a little bit, but um, all, all you can really do, I suppose, is, is make a stand because at least you are making a stand. But what, I just don't get, I just don't get it. I don't get it. If someone goes to a football match and, and okay, I know in this situation, perhaps it's not about what's happening at the matches so much, but if you go to a football match and you uh, pick on someone for their race from the other team, for instance, hmm. what do you think Eve Basuma thinks? I just, I can't, I can't comprehend it, you know, in a, in a, in a multiracial sport, um, that attracts people from all walks of life, all all sorts of uh, different nationalities, backgrounds, you know, people that have grown up in Africa and scrapped their way through into the Premier League and everything else. I just can't get my head around it. But whether this will make any difference, I don't know. It's just, it's just ridiculously sad that we're in this situation. I, I, yeah. I just don't get it. No, I don't. I do think that the um, social media companies are extremely spineless and they're very much just they're, they're paying lip service in a very casual way and they're not really doing anything and, and it's a serious issue it's as regular to be racially abused if you're black here it seems as as it is to do your warm downs after the game it seems seems to be on that scale doesn't it now uh, yeah. i can't I've, I've forgotten probably more than i could remember how many people have been abused the amount of reports and it's uh it goes on and on and on i, I, um, I did have the thought earlier that you know well Maybe if you take a sort of a slightly realistic tack as opposed to a, a, an idealistic tack, it, it must be easy for these companies to introduce filters so that these players yeah. don't have to see this kind of abuse. Now, there's an immediate argument against that, which is, well, hang on, why should we be censoring this? You know, we, 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 don't, we don't want to sort of censor freedom of speech and blah, 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 even though it doesn't really fall into a freedom of speech category. Um, but, you know, why should we be centering? That's not addressing the root. That's addressing the symptom, not the cause. And I can see that argument. However, if you basically, these people didn't get a reaction, if their vile words are not getting through to the players, if their abuse isn't even making it that far, what's the point? Would they not yeah. just give up? Yeah. You, you know, so so that would be my sort of take on it. But uh, as a, there's a lot of sort of theoretical and ethical arguments and everything else about censorship and all, all that kind of thing once you get into that but I think the social media companies are hiding behind a lot of that stuff you know they can stop this if they want to can't they so let's hope yeah. that this does have some effect and they take some notice but the chances of gigantic you know social media companies taking notice of it are I believe it when it happens, unfortunately. I think the priorities are different, aren't they, for these large conglomerates? And speaking of which, on our very final subject, I've got to ask you before you go about uh, the Super League proposals. I put the word super in quote marks. Um, obviously, there's a whole load of stuff's gone on. I've covered it on the pod, so we won't go into detail about the what's happened so far. I mean, I think we all know what's happened. Um, but I wanted to get your take on it. I mean, first of all, um, Florentino Perez seems to be very delusional. He, Laporta of Barca and Agnelli of, um, of Juve, seemingly still on board with it, incredulous about its unpopularity and genuinely seem to believe their plans are for the best, not only of their own clubs, but for the wider football world, which um, is incredible. They, I mean, the, the Spanish population in general, um, 
I think, of, of feeling very disenfranchised with any coverage of, uh, of football and, and priorities and where they're placed anyway. For him to say that seems both audacious and bizarre. Um, it's, it, there's so many, so many details to this. Agnelli apparently is, um, I, I think, as I understand it, Seferin, the UEFA boss, is godfather to one of Agnelli's um, youngest, youngest kid, I think it is. Uh, yeah, I believe they, they, they were very close, weren't they? So, I mean, obviously, yeah, the, yeah, the level of yeah, betrayal was unbelievable, really. You know, for, for UEFA to have sat in these meetings and to have, you know, talked about um, changing the Champions League and everything, which was all really dancing to the tune of, you know, these uh, of the most powerful clubs in Europe to, to bring those changes about uh, and, and to be told, yeah, yeah, we'll go along with that. Um and then to to find out, you know, forty eight hours later, uh, with with no warning that they've been plotting behind their backs, it's an incredible betrayal. I, I think that the what what sums it up more than anything is, you know, to hear to hear club owners saying things like, "Well, you know, we've got to do this for the good of football because if we don't do this, we won't be able to sign um, um, Holland and Mbappe." And it's like, well, in what world is it a good thing that you sign both those players. You know, it's like if you can't afford to sign them, you can't afford to sign them. We, I, I, I wouldn't mind us signing Holland and Mbappe. Um, yeah. I don't really think necessarily that we should reorganise the whole of European football so that we can bring them to the Amex. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they they're in huge debts. Apparently, a billion, isn't it? Real Madrid. I mean, they're they're probably the most odious of the lot. I can't stand Real Madrid, um, Perez's club. Um, I mean, they've been bailed out of trouble on at least two occasions by the government, and effectively, therefore, the taxpayers, um, which is, itself is disgraceful. I think they bought the grounds for an excessive, the training ground for an excessive excessive amount of government, and then sold it back to them for a peppercorn amount. That in itself is outrageous, if if true, um, and. As you said, they've, they've got themselves into huge debt. They've, they've got all of the benefits. They've got they negotiate their own TV deals, the same as Barcelona, which gives them a huge advantage over the rest of the Spanish clubs. They've got the cheek to complain. It's you know it's it's a privileged position for a few. And and they um, they buy. They've had the Galacticos model. They've bought their way into situations like this. He's done it before. He's doing it again. And they're just asking for a bailout, really, for themselves for not being run well. And I think, or much as Gary Neville, you can say there is a hypocritical element to it because of what he's done with Salford. He spoke very well. Everything he said, I completely agree with, including, you know, making a nod about Sky's participation in the Premier League scenario that went before it, which is fair play and fair play to Sky for letting him say it, if they did let him say it. Um, but he's been spot on. He was talking about the attempted murder of football. I think the, it goes the, that far. The thing is with Sky is that when they came in, you know, they they did stay within when when the Premier League was formed. Obviously, with Sky on board as as kind of partners, really, it was though still within the structure of a pyramid that involved promotion, relegation. It wasn't a closed shop, you know, and that was the real difference with this, wasn't it? So, and and the same with Gary Neville. I mean, people have always people have always put money in and tried to get their clubs up through the league. So, where where would we be without Tony Bloom? Even though most of that's been infrastructure rather than um, you know, sort of financial investment in the team, but he, he was paying off those debts in the championship year after year for us, you know. So so that is the way of the world. But the structure of promotion and relegation is absolutely key. And I do hope the one thing, it, it's unfortunate that those clubs are very important to the Premier League. They're very important to the Champions League. Yeah, the idea of punishing them 
is very appealing, but at the same time, you know, probably wouldn't achieve a great deal in the long run because you probably sort of want to keep them on board and work with them rather than against them because you're just storing up a lot of trouble for yourself. Um, but the one thing I do hope that they they would look at is I hope UEFA do reconsider the the Champions League format. And I think there might be some pressure for that now, um, particularly the two uh, wild card VIP passes, whatever you yeah. want to call them, that allow those type of clubs to get in at the expense of clubs that have qualified through their league positions. Um, so let's hope they, they look at that again. And there's clearly a lot of disquiet too about the amount of games that teams will have to play now, you know, with, with 10 matches in the Champions League. I don't think anyone ever looked at a good cup competition like the Champions League and said, you know what this needs? It's more group matches. Exactly. I mean, no, one has, yeah. no one has ever said that. So, um, you know, that has been done really at the behest of the big clubs. And hmm. my hope would be that that gets revisited because um, the yeah. Champions League is good. You know, particularly at this stage, the Champions League is, you know, well, it, it, it's great before Christmas because that's when I get to work on it. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, you know, realistically... Um, once you get beyond the group stage, um, you know it's really it becomes really entertaining, and it, if it's not broke, why you know don't don't fix it. That's the... yeah. I I think the model they've got now is is exactly perfect. It has some underdog elements. It has got you know good roundedness to it. The right number of games, without it being too much. And this yeah, new model, right. they've yeah they they've got it through the system, haven't they? Um, this in this week with all the fuss, um, this new model, the Swiss model. You know, ultimately, that's not it's not a great system. It's um, it's disjointed. It stretches the the, the yeah, fixture list. It's it's complicated, and no one likes mm. complicated. Um, you know, football fan just doesn't you know because they don't play each other twice and stuff like that. Um, and it's well, as I say, it's it's more group games and it's just more matches that football does not need. Yeah, that, that exactly. Is the top top level football does not need more matches. Um, much as it's great for people like me that, you know, will get an extra four days work out of it or something. Um, you know, it's, 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 I don't think it's a good model at all, really. Um, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. You know, so, some of these things that have come in have been very good, like the UEFA Nations League was excellent. Um, that really did sort of pep up international football when we had that. And I think when you see the World Cup qualifiers now, um, when you're in with, you know, the, big, the bigger nations are in with the minnows, doesn't work as well and no one really kind of understood the Nations League it was quite a complicated format but it did pep up international football quite a lot much better than friendlies so progress is not necessarily a bad thing but I can't really see this as progress you know the Champions League has evolved to what it is now and what it is now works pretty well actually what it was last season worked pretty well too which was to have the the sort of almost like Champions League finals in one place that that worked yeah. very well um but probably not so much maybe financially in terms of what you can bring in uh but um no leave it alone i say yeah indeed along with the world cup which they're talking about expanding but that's a whole new, whole yeah. new argument yeah. but dave i must let you go because you've got to have the rest of your evening <laughs> so thank you very much for Sort of sticking with us for so long uh, it's been a real pleasure having you on really interesting perhaps get you back in the future to talk about uh well whatever whatever it might be now the new dirty dozen league as it has finally been instigated or hopefully not <laughs> albion getting into it maybe or into uh, the europa league who knows but know. um, either way thank you very much for joining us dave and um 
it's been a pleasure. And so I'll, I'll just pass in the usual way by saying, stand or fall, up the Albion. Sports Social Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.